You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 359. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hallo! Hey son, hey son! Happy New Year! Happy New Happy, Year! Well, yes, well, or like, yes, welcome to that. Again. <laughs> Happy New Year, again, yeah. <laughs> Boldog Uyévet. How have you been? Busy, busy, busy. Busy, yeah. Were you working during New Year's? Well, kind of working on New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve because when I'm I'm on I'm, I'm on a tour, I'm I'm always on duty. Okay, so mm. it's like um, yeah, it's it's I'm not I'm, I'm never off. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I kind of try to entertain a little bit as well. Oh, so we saw the Facebook can... videos. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I, I bet you didn't understand a word of it because it was all in Hungarian. I didn't even have sound on, to be honest. So <laughs> it didn't matter. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but well, I, I know surprise. that you can sing, Andras. So <laughs> we should put a link to that video on the show notes. Yeah, I, do, I actually do mm. have a certificate of being a jazz singer. Singer, so Ooh. yeah. Ooh. They certify everything these days. You could be a chiropractor, you could be a, a yes, anthroposopher, exactly. whatever exactly. they call that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice of you Doesn't to say that. Doesn't mean anything. Nice of you to say that. Yeah, actually, yeah, but, it, but I haven't practiced it. So I, at one time, I was really serious about becoming a singer, a professional singer mm. and an actor and all that. And um, mm. I, I gave it up, so I grew out of it. But um, t- about 20 years ago, I was really serious about that stuff. And that's when mm-hmm. I, I decided to go for it. And I, I studied singing and jazz and all the musical theory and everything for three years. That was mm. my... Mm. Yeah. You hear that, listeners? This could be a totally different show if things had gone a little <laughs> bit different. <laughs> Funnily enough, I know that Kara Santa Maria also studied to be a musician oh, when nice. she was younger. I didn't know that. So, wow. Yeah, okay. it's uh, you're in good company <laughs> as podcaster, <laughs> ex-musician, and so on. <laughs> and how, how have you been, guys? I was listening to the show just today, this um, afternoon, and I really yeah. enjoyed it. It was mm. it was really good. We aim to please. <laughs> <laughs> I I specifically admired your take on uh, the Vlad Tepes thing yeah, and yeah. how how these uh, so-called or self-proclaimed researchers or entrepreneurs decided to go for something that is way out of the realm of science. I mean, they make claims that are not necessarily substantiated by... No, no. <laughs> uh, we have more of the, that kind of claims later on in this episode, I can tell you. Not about uh, yeah. him, but about somebody else. But um, we do have some listener feedback. And mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to, mm-hmm. to say that because I was happy about... Uh, I was always happy to get a, a feedback mm-hmm. regarding what we talk about. And that was about the new Spaceport S-Range that I talked about. Yeah, yeah. So uh, for the people, if you missed the last episode, this is the new launch pad that ESA, the European Space Agency, will use for some of the satellite launches going forward. And uh, listeners Marcel John from the Netherlands and Gary from Israel both wrote in to point out a few things that I thought was interesting. Both of them point out that launching from uh, as near the equator as possible, as ESA has done so far, is more efficient than launching from near the poles because you can take advantage of the speed of the rotation of the Earth. And I didn't think of that. That's, uh, That's brilliant. That's true. Makes a lot of sense. Marcel Jean also pointed out that the equator is much better for launching satellites into geostationary orbits, which I do understand, and that's that's quite... I didn't mention that, but if you want to your satellite to go around the equator, of course, it's better if you launch from as near the equator as possible. It may not be a disadvantage, though, to launch satellites from near the poles if you want to have satellites that cover most of the Earth going not in a geostationary orbit, but rotating the Earth the other way, and or the Earth is rotating under you, you can have one orbit and then over time cover the whole Earth. That's very good for if you study weather phenomenon and things like that. And then Gary wonders if the weather conditions so far north, as the north of Sweden is, could be a problem given that, uh, well, we know that the U.S. sometimes have weather issues when launching from Florida. So 
I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe, Anders, you have an input on that. But I would say that the problem is more about unstable weather. If you have stable weather, it doesn't matter if it's a bit cold. And my very much guesswork here would be that since you need to keep the rocket fuel cool, then maybe it even would be an advantage from that point of view to have it in, you know, if you have below zero weather. It may not be a problem, at least, that it's cold outside, as long as it's not a lot of winds or, or other unstable things. But that's cool. Cool to think a little bit more about this. And uh, we will see what kind of satellites that ESA will launch from Spaceport S-Range in the future. There are a couple of more aspects of this that I think we could mention. Uh, one of them is if you want to launch from a distant point, the one that, that ESA usually uses this time, mm. you have to get the payload there. You have to get the whole rocket and everything there. So it's even if it's if the rocket is manufactured on the spot or it's put together there, the payload is not. The payload has to be shipped there. So mm. that comes with a lot of expenses. That comes with a lot of energy that you have to use. So it might not be such a bad idea to launch from a location closer to where the payload was assembled. That's one hmm. one thing. And you have to take into account that it's all about, when, when you launch something, it's all about velocity. And the orbital velocity that you want to reach depends on the height of the orbit. So the size of the orbit around the Earth. If you don't need to send it very far, or if you don't ha need, need it to escape the Earth and reach escape velocity, then you don't need to accelerate it to that high a speed. Mm. So the advantage that you gain with launching from a location where the Earth has a higher rotation speed, it doesn't necessarily make it worth shipping it there. So that's yeah. another thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, there's another that we should move on, but I want to mention <laughs> one more thing, and that is that it is good to launch it from a place where there are not too much people around. Yeah. And that's true for both French Guyana and, and the, the S range uh, spaceport or spaceport S range. And the last thing I want to mention as well is that Marcel Jan actually knows a lot about space. And he, he has a website about that. And I will, I, I read a little bit. It's in Dutch, but it translates very well using Google Translate. So we'll put that uh, link in the show notes as well. Mm. Awesome. Mm. I always love good listener feedback. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there, by the way, there are plans to launch from the remote parts of Scotland as well. And oh. that is very high up north too. So, um, yeah. And I'm pretty sure that those people who have made those decisions did really think about it. <laughs> so it's Hopefully like it they wasn't... know more about it than we do, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right, so um, moving on. Just you mentioned stability of the weather that is more necessary to a successful launch. Well, this is something that we don't have, at least not right now in winter, right? So what, what, what the hell is going on? So what the temperature is like in your countries? Here it's about 13, 15 degrees. At yeah, least it's today it was. crazy. Okay, for, for me, it's quite normal. It's like a little bit on the high side, but it's 7, 8 degrees. So it's pretty normal so far. Yeah, we, we had 17 mm. degrees on New Year's Eve. Mm. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> At midnight. Remember, like, we were outside. We didn't need, even really need to wear a jacket. That's what we have on midsummer. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> 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 so it's like, yeah. It feels very mild. It really feels like April. And it's like, mm -hmm. on the one hand, it's, oh, yeah, that's actually, yeah, it's nice. And on the other hand, you're like, we're fucked. <laughs> yeah. But it is very strange. I, I hear from, from Poland, and yeah. Czech, yeah, every, all around, it's really crazy weather. Yeah. Almost 20 degrees above mm -hmm. normal in some places. On the other hand, you know that there are like deadly blizzards in America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we, we had a minus 12 degrees in the beginning of December. And now we have 20 plus, you know, it's, it's so crazy. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's so wonky. <laughs> yeah, the weather in the United States is a, has different other factors as well. The whole of the America, the North, North America is a little bit different from, from what's going on in Europe. But mm -hmm. it all has a lot to do with global climate change. And it's undeniable. Mm. 
and it we should mm-hmm. probably do something about it we should we should make a new year's resolution <laughs> that we we make we take take better care of our <laughs> we should have done that 50 years ago yeah but. a few decades ago <laughs> mm. yeah but by, by yeah. the way any new year resolutions guys nah after all this is the first episode of the year after 2023 <laughs> so <laughs> i don't i don't make promises i can't keep so. <laughs> Well, we all are regular readers of Ed Zedern's blog. His first uh, blog post of the year was hilarious. He he was referring back to a Swedish piece of research uh, from back in 2020 about how successful people could be with New Year's resolutions. And then he points out a Quirkology article. So it has something to do with Richard Wiseman, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. And it was a research that they did back in 2007 with 3,000 people they were doing follow-ups and it looks like it's not very likely that people actually keep their new year resolutions so (laughs) as it goes on listing a couple of things regarding online behavior against well quacks and different people promoting stuff that we fight against that he he will be nicer towards them he will not call them names and stuff And, and then he lists seven of those points and then the eighth point is that I shall not feel tempted to adhere to my New Year's resolutions. <laughs> so that's the eighth New Year resolution. So I can definitely relate to that. But the New Year is always something like a call for a change, right? So people make note of everything that we have done in the previous year and what we would like to change. So it's it's just understandable that even though it's, it's completely arbitrary that we put this point forward as the starting point of the year. But it's always a good opportunity to try and r- reflect on what we have behind us and what we are having ahead of us. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's <laughs> sorry before wandering off too far. Let's do the first show of the year, shall we? That's a good idea. Okay, <laughs> and of course, as usual, we will start with this week in skeptical history, also known as Trish. And I'm pretty sure that uh, many of our listeners who identify as skeptics agree with us that uh, skepticism and science fiction go hand in hand in a way. So a lot of our skeptical friends are very fond of science fiction. And when it comes to science fiction, there is hardly a bigger name than Isaac Asimov. Woohoo! He was... <laughs> allegedly born on the 2nd of January 1920, we are celebrating his birthday. So why am I saying allegedly? Because you're a skeptic? Yes, and apparently there is no birth certificate that he could show for. Ah, he didn't exist. Um, No, he didn't exist at all. (laughs) But... uh, Or maybe, maybe he was born in Kenya, like famous uh, presidents... Yes, and yeah, 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 okay, now I get the reference. No, I don't think it is the case. Uh, he was born in Russia, by the way. So mm-hmm. the reason why we can talk about him, because everyone identifies him as an American writer, but he was born in Russia to a Russian Jewish family. Oh. Yes, and he was three years old when the family moved. <laughs> when he was born? <laughs> <laughs> No, when the family... He was three years old when, when the family moved to the United States. <laughs> All right. We, we don't know how old he was when he was born because <laughs> he, celebrated, <laughs> he celebrated his birthday. But I'm serious about this. He celebrated his birthday on <laughs> the 2nd of January. Mm-hmm. But researchers trying to find out the actual date say that it's sometime between 4th of October 1919 and the 2nd of January, 1920. So we don't know because there is no birth certificate. (laughs) But he celebrated his birthday on the 2nd of January. So this is what we are going with. Mm. And we are celebrating him on this occasion as well. Yeah, he was a very smart little boy and he self-taught himself to read. So it was like amazing. And then he taught Mm -hmm. his sister as well to read. And his lifelong love towards words came along with uh, his father's, his his parents' candy store, where a lot of um, books and other things were sold as well, including some of the earliest science fiction series. One of them was called Galaxy. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was an, uh, fascinated by all those stories, and then he ended up writing about that as well. But in the meantime, when he grew up, he went on to university studying chemistry. So he became a biochemist. He also did postdoctoral studies or a postdoctoral program. Uh, more like. And this was the basis of him not only writing about science fiction, but also non-fiction. He was a science educator and science popularizer as well, as a science fiction writer. But most of us know him from being a science fiction author. And he was absolutely prolific. He wrote about Mm. 500 books, more than 500 of them. Incredible. (laughs) It's absolutely incredible. How can you do that? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, well, no, that, I don't that's know. ten a year or something. He 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 was he became fairly old, but, yeah, but he wasn't that old. Books per year. How old was he? Seventy-two when he died. Seventy-two. Okay. It's, oh, not, oh, it's not very old. Yeah, okay, that's not now. No, that's you're right. It's that's not old. Anyway, yeah, yeah. but. Uh, of course, uh, as most of us know, his uh, most famous works included the Foundation series, the Foundation trilogy. And he introduced the word robotics, by the way, which was based on the word robot, previously introduced by a Czech writer back in 1920. However, in one of the latest episodes of the Skeptics Guide to the Universe, Cara Santa Maria listed the word robot as one of the words of um, what's the word segment that she does. And uh, she said that this was the origin of the word robot, which is not necessarily true. The, the, the origin of the word is from Slavic languages. In Russian, the word robot still means work. And it was used in the Middle Ages all across Europe, the word robot as uh, forced labor. So mm. basically, that is the basis of the word that we use. And he, mm-hmm. Asimov, formulated the three laws of robotics, the basic laws that are still used, actually, to this day. So he used the word robotics in, this, in the Foundation trilogy. Yeah, I think that is all. Obviously, we could, we could go on and on and on for about, for about hours about um, Isaac Asimov, but... Um, well, you could you could just m- mention that the Foundation series is a fantastic series of books, and it, it is. made a terrible TV series. I must say, I haven't, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen no, it. No, so d- don't know. bother. Don't bother. <laughs> they, but it is a hard. I think it's been said before that you can never make a good movie out of the Foundation books, and I think mm. they proved it now. So, <laughs> Yeah. I have to say that I don't think it works as an audiobook either. I tried. It, mm. it didn't. Mm. So you have but to read, read the books. Yourself. The books are great. <laughs> yes. Read them for yourself, and exactly. uh, they are very good. Very, very good. Yeah. And with this, we wish a happy birthday to Isaac Asimov or the memory of his. <laughs> happy birthday. <laughs> Yeah, whenever he was born. (laughs) (laughs) So, moving on to... uh, Speaking of the memory of people, let's move on to Pontus poking the Pope. I'm sure very few people missed it, but Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, a.k.a. Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, a.k.a. Senator Palpatine, (laughs) he died on uh, New Year's Eve. Allegedly. <laughs> uh, allegedly, yeah. Well, he's probably quite dead. I mean, his age was 95, so he was he was yeah, an old yeah. man. And he'd actually been Pope Emeritus longer than he was the Pope, interestingly <laughs> enough. There is a saying in Latin saying, the mortuis nihil nisi bonum. How, how's your Latin, people? Uh, bonum is good, I think. Right. Uh, nihil is not or nothing. Right. So the dead is nothing good. Don't say nothing bad about the dead. <laughs> exactly, that is the that is the saying. Don't say anything bad about the dead. But I I will uh, a little bit. So you are actually going to poke a dead pope. That is I will yes, yes, with a very long stick. Yes. <laughs> so uh, Benedict Ratzinger, he was not a modern pope or actually a very good pope. I in my opinion. He was a man of books, and he was a prolific writer, seemingly not very interested in humans at all, in my opinion. 
In fact, he often referred to his collection of books as his quote-unquote friends, which is a bit sad in a way. (laughs) Uh, This doesn't mean that he was an unimportant pope. He got a reputation very early on in his career for uh, wanting to reform the church, which led to some people regarding him as some sort of a progressive person, which is not true. In his late 30s, he started to make a name for himself during the Second Vatican Council of 1962 to 1965, where he acted as peritus, which is theological consultant. And there's a lot of Latin here today, but, but it's, it's not unintentional. <laughs> uh, Ratzinger loved his Latin. During the Vatican Council in the 60s, uh, John XXIII died in, uh, after just a year. So the Second Vatican Council came to a stop, but then it was revived again by Paul IV, the successor to John XXIII. And Paul IV made it foundation for modernizing the church. Well, we can see how well that went or not. As I said, Ratzinger was hardly a progressive, even though he wanted to reform things. Actually, the reforms he advocated for were a return back to traditional ideals. Nevertheless, Paul IV made him a cardinal in 1977, and in 1981 he was appointed head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. This is the organization that started out way back when as the Papal Inquisition, and now has been renamed again quite recently to the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. Anyway, Ratzinger held his position until he became Pope himself in 2005. He didn't seem to like that position very much. He handed in his resignation twice, but John Paul II, who was the Pope later on, refused him both times. So he he remained the head of this organization, and he didn't want to, but he still managed to do a lot of harm. And I I, want to add a little trigger warning here, because there's a lot of objectionable language from Ratzinger when it comes to same-sex relations coming up. So be, be aware of that. One example is the letter that he issued in 1986, mid-80s. It is known as the, quote, homosexualitatis problema, end quote. You can hear from the name what it's all about, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and, and how he looked at uh, homosexuality. It's a problem, right, apparently. In this document, Ratzinger admits that some people could be born with a, quote, homosexual orientation, end quote, And for that, they should not be attacked or abused. Okay, so far, so good. However, he says, quote, the inclination itself must be seen as an objective disorder, end quote. So there we know where he stands. Basically, tough on you. If you're gay, you can still not act on it because you're a sick person if you do. So that's really objectionable. Um, He did follow up this letter. This was in in the mid-80s, right? But still, in 2003, he followed this up when he declared that discrimination against quote-unquote homosexual orientation was not the same as discrimination due to race, sex, or other minorities because, and here's a quote, homosexual orientation is an objective disorder, end quote. So, fuck that guy, in my opinion. (laughs) And this well, is still... <laughs> Speaking of well, homo- okay. homosexuality, that is... Well, maybe uh, he would have learned something. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody had fucked him. Anyway, this is still... What he described there is still the official position of the Catholic Church. It is true that Francis, in 2021, said that even if he objected to same-sex marriages as such, he could support civil unions for same-sex couples... But he also basically said that sleeping together was still a sin and that cannot be approved. So what's the point of approving a civil union if you're supposed to live in separate bedrooms? I I don't understand how that can be a concession to anything. In 2001, when he's still the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Ratzinger sent out another letter called De Delictis Graviorebus. And this is Latin for on more serious crimes. So this is Mm -hmm. a letter about more serious crimes. And this was specifically directed to crimes committed by priests and bishops of the church. What do you think he focused on? Just a wild guess. I'll give you a hint. There were seven listed crimes. 
Sexuality. Little bit of that. Little bit of that. Sloth. <laughs> <laughs> the first four, and I'm not kidding, the first four crimes that he listed all has to do with the holy crackers. Uh... How you cannot handle the crackers. If you cannot drink, you can't eat them if you don't have wine. Blah, 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 blah. That was the gravioribus crimes that he he listed very grave so, definitely yeah, yeah I, I didn't even Important i didn't stuff. even write them down because that's so silly to have uh, serious crimes about crackers the next three so there were seven the next three are all about the confession what you can do and not do during confession two of them mm. are about sex the first one is you cannot absolve sexual sin that's forbidden so, tough. again, tough if you're gay, right? You cannot yeah. get forgiveness in confession. And the other was rather interesting. You cannot, as a priest, make sexual advances during the confession. That means that Ooh. that must have been a common thing, right? A if thing, you have yeah. to have if list it, that as... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Don't do that. Okay, I agree. Don't do that. But it's uh, fascinating that that's one of the seven uh, grave crimes that you have to address. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. Uh, yeah. You're right. And then the third crime during confession uh, about confession was that you cannot reveal what you have learned uh, during confession. That's the whole point, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that that's the seven rules. But then there was more like an afterthought. It is mentioned not as a listed uh, crime, but in the text almost at the end there it says it's not okay to have sex with children. So, I guess that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is correct. Fuck. That is very yeah. correct. So so <laughs> these are the things that the Catholic Church are interested in. It, first of all, it's crackers, crackers, crackers. And then it is the confession and the rituals. And then maybe you shouldn't have sex with children. Uh-huh. All right. Okay, so moving on. Eventually he became the Pope. And he was poor at managing people. Not just me saying this. This is He wasn't a people person. And he wasn't very popular within the church. You can see it already now that when he died, when the announcement was made, it wasn't like a lot of people uh, flocked to the St. Peter's place and expressing their grief. Actually, nothing happened. When uh, John Paul II died, it was packed. It was packed. I, I do hear that then he's now, or he has been, as we record this, I think he's still on display, his body is still on display in uh, St. Peter's Church, and there's been a couple of hundred thousand people paying their respects. But some of them, I guess, are just uh, curious. So he was not very popular. He <laughs> is made he attempts. Really dead? Uh, <laughs> they wanted oh, to make no, sure. <laughs> this is long enough. I don't want to get into this myth about the little hammer that you hit the Pope over three times. Just make sure that he's really dead. For any who is interested in that, I recommend Snopes. But (laughs) what did he do as a pope? He attempted to bring back Latin for mass. He was criticized for not addressing the sex abuse scandals harshly enough. Then the most remarkable thing that he did was actually to resign. He did that in uh, 2013. And he did so without having any plan or he hasn't he kept it a secret so it wasn't a surprise for everybody so nobody knew how to handle the position of a former pope many people think that he should have gone back to just becoming a cardinal again and become cardinal ratzinger uh, but he chose to remain pope or to become the pope emeritus and to continue to be known as benedict and to wear the papal white robes uh, a papal historian at keen university he's called uh, christopher bellito had this to say, now that uh, Ratzinger is dead, quote, you can't have a former Pope walking about wearing white and then be surprised when some people say mistakenly that there are two Popes. His death allows the church now to have some serious conversations about how you should handle a future post-papacy. And the answer is not this way, end quote. (laughs) I do agree with that. It was has been confusing. I don't know if things will be easier for Francis now that Benedict is gone. But anyway, uh, there's a lot more to say about Benedict as a pope and as a person. But I think I should stop now. Otherwise, this episode will be <laughs> much too long. <laughs> the I episode agree. where Pontus pokes the pope. <laughs> <laughs> There will be lots of links in the in the show notes. <laughs> 
All right. Thank you very much, Pontus, for poking and dab poke. <laughs> and now we're moving on to what's going on across Europe, or what has been going on across Europe. Let's start with a quick one from the world of religion to the world of skeptics. And many of many skeptics identify as humanists as well. So based on that, I'd like to mention something that happened towards the end of December. The European Humanist Federation got dissolved. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it will no longer work or representation They didn't join the Catholic European Church humanists. instead. No, no, no. So it wasn't it wasn't that kind of change. <laughs> they basically merged into a larger organization, which is the Humanists International. And it, when the decision of that uh, change was made on the 18th of December 2022 at the General Assembly of the European Humanist Federation. It's an interesting thing. I didn't really find... A reason apart from managerial issues so it's mm-hmm. uh, because one would think that because the european humanist federation was influential at uh, some of the decision making processes of the european union and the different bodies of the european union one would think that once it becomes part of a global kind of organization that role will be somewhat diminished this is something that I kind of worry about, but it would be interesting to hear from some of the representatives. And uh, when it comes to what the member organizations will do in the future, there were 24 member organizations, by the way, of the European Humanist Federation. They will continue working as the Humanist International. By the way, Humanists International is registered in the United States and it's managed from London, the United Kingdom. Whereas um, the European Communist Federation was uh, managed from Brussels. Their office was based in Brussels. So this is something that I kind of find a little bit concerning when it comes to the representation of humanists on the European political level. Yeah, we'll see about that, how Mm -hmm. it goes, because the decision was just made and it was uh, made effective at the beginning of the year of 2023. So it's very very recent but humanism Mm -hmm. does need to be represented in decision making uh, processes i strongly believe that okay i want to talk about a conspiracy theory uh, that did emerge during 2022 Mm -hmm. and uh, this was absurd rumors online about the swedish social services they have or they were and they are still being accused of kidnapping children especially of Muslim immigrants, and then trafficking them and uh, similar crazy things. Mm -hmm. The Swedish authorities, apparently, is doing this. Now, there is a newspaper that has mapped where this misinformation and disinformation is coming from and how it emerged. Well, it should be said that the social services occasionally do remove children, sometimes forcibly, from a family, according to established rules. This could involve abusive parents or violent children or other kinds of problems where it's obvious that the parents cannot take care of their child. The authorities step in. Naturally, that can happen with immigrants as well as with Swedish families. It's not specifically towards immigration. But if you think about it, if you have a language issue because you've just arrived to a country and you don't know the language well enough and there are big cultural differences... There can be misunderstandings about this and there can be a conflict here that can lead to mistrust. I think that's part of of this uh, conspiracy theory. It turns out that in December 2021, a mother was interviewed on an Egyptian YouTube channel, uh, a channel with uh, over 800,000 followers, right? So it got a, a far outreach. This mother said that about 10 families that she knew of had lost their children because the authorities had forcibly taken away the children. And this had been done on false grounds, she said. She alleged that the Social Services Act, which is a Swedish law, is being quote-unquote systematically abused to kidnap and forcibly assimilate immigrant children. She also referred to a known Swedish conspiracy theorist as the source for this. 
And this interview wasn't on the radar for most people in Sweden because I assume this was done in Arabic and, and most Swedes do not speak Arabic. But it got a lot of uh, attention abroad and with people in Sweden who has Muslim backgrounds. And it went absolutely viral. And it, that started this full online campaign of hate and disinformation against the Swedish social services. Pictures of children taken from random places on the internet nothing has nothing to do with Sweden or anything. They were spread with texts about these children has been kidnapped by the Swedish authorities. And sometimes true stories were distorted and rewritten. One story was about a girl called Miriam who had been quote-unquote sold to a homosexual couple for money. It was claimed that she must be Muslim because, quote, no Swedish parent would name their daughter Miriam, end quote. Which is nonsense. <laughs> I know at least one person who's very Swedish and she is called Miriam. So, so yeah, it happens. Oh, right? Miriam is a pretty popular name, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It's a biblical name. So any... Any, um, I know several Miriams in Germany. <laughs> you're right, yeah. So it turns out that there is a girl called Miriam that they referred to. And she had indeed been adopted by two gay men, but there was nothing nefarious about it. Uh, she was not of Muslim origin, and it was all done legally with proper consent for every from everybody involved. And now, of course... This poor family is in a very bad situation with rumors of trafficking and abuse and they get threats and stuff like that. I don't know how to fight this kind of thing, these kinds of rumors, but it's interesting from a skeptical point of view to see and get it mapped how this came to be and how it started. Then how you stop it, well, that's anybody's guess. But there is this oh. conspiracy theory now that the Swedish authorities is stealing children from immigrants and selling them. As you do. Yeah. <laughs> As uh, you that's, do. That's not that's not <laughs> As true no one does, or hopefully not yeah. many people do. Yeah. Wow. Did you know that Russia is afraid <laughs> of very likely attacks? And that I'm not talking about attacks of warfare, I'm talking about psychic attacks. <laughs> psychic attack yes mm. like in the men who stare at goats well there was a memo leaked from the kremlin and that actually got revealed that the russian federal guard service gave out a note and there they want their soldiers to be prepared for psychological issues because they're afraid of a potential massive ideological attack Okay, but this is not about, not only about propaganda, like wartime propaganda and like the morale of the soldiers, because that would be like, yeah, I would understand that, that you're like, yeah, we have to keep up um, motivation in, in the troops. But this is actually that they are afraid that an enemy could man manipulate them through hypnosis. <laughs> Sorry, Re I should... Remotely? Yeah. Of course. Wow. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure even about hypnosis when you're in the same mm -hmm. room. There's a lot of debate about yes. that. But, <laughs> but doing it remotely, that's very impressive. <laughs> and they're also afraid of unknown mystical and psychic powers. They warn in the memo, they warn of uh, psi generators and hypnotic abilities used by foreign personnel. Interestingly, belief in mystic powers is pretty popular and common in Russia. 20% um, of people have visited a psychic and more than 60% believe in some form of magic. Mm, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, we, we know that a lot of the leaders in, in Russia believe in astrology, numerology, in psychics and mysticism. And this is, this just shows, shows it again that all of that, like folk medicine, psychic healing, horoscopes, they all play a prominent place in Russia. Mm. And they're not seen as like, as a joke as we sometimes see it. Interestingly, it completely merged with Putin's Pope, as, as Pontus always says. <laughs> yes, I was going mm -hmm. to say. It, yeah. it, it merges really well with that, with a Russian... With Kirill. Yeah, yes. <laughs> with, with these or beliefs about apocalyptic scenarios and satanic influence. For example, Putin described that the Western suppression of freedom itself has taken on the features of a religion, outright Satanism. That's what Putin said. Yeah, and you can see that this is really like the mysticism is not opposed to their belief. It is actually part of it. 
But the good thing is that they that they say that they they know how to avert this kind of psychic assault. They want to psychically strengthen their officers by telling them stories about the bravery of their colleagues. Then they also want to give them tours of the Cathedral of Our Lady of Kazan in Moscow to really strengthen them and to make it impossible to be psychically targeted. Yeah, I don't want to giggle too much about that because these people are still fighting a war. But yeah, sometimes I can just scratch my head around that, about these beliefs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What I wanted to say is that this article was sent to us by Kevin Davis. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Kevin from Australia. Yes. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> yeah. So I, I hope they I hope the Russians now will scrap or divert all the money that they put into the military and just put it into psychic yes, defense. Please. Yes, that would be awesome. <laughs> because that would that would help us, at least in the short term. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. And in that is not intelligence news. The Danish military intelligence has got Putin all figured out. So we stay on Russia a little mm-hmm. bit here. Apparently, they know everything about him now. We have mentioned in the past that there are rumors about Vladimir Putin suffering from some kind of cancer illness. The speculation that we have heard is that it's been centered around some sort of throat issue. The rumor is due to the kind of experts that Putin seems to surround himself with. Up to a dozen medical experts have reportedly followed him around when he was traveling, and maybe half of them seems to be experts in illnesses around the throat. What we have said about this, that is very problematic indeed, to try to diagnose people from Mm -hmm. afar, just based on rumors and occasional 15-second appearances on official TV clips, TV clips that were carefully selected and approved by state-controlled media. So so don't try to do that. But (laughs) the Danish intelligence service, or Forsvarets Efterretningstjeneste, or FE. <laughs> yeah, they do mm-hmm. not agree yeah. with my assessment here. An anonymous source inside FE, known only to us as the, the alias Joachim, he has said to one of the leading Danish newspapers called Berlinske Tidene that FE has arrived at some shocking theory that goes as follows. Based on the idea of Putin having cancer or having had cancer perhaps they say that his megalomaniac actions against ukraine is a known side effect of a certain hormone treatment that is commonly given against this kind of cancer and other signs of this is that uh, his the shape of his this is funny the shape of the wrinkles above his forehead putin's forehead well i, I guess where the hairline would be if he had any hair that that's changed apparently, and and that is also a side effect of this hormone treatment, and also the way he's grasping the table when he speaks in public would be a sign of this illness or slash treatment. What do you say about this, guys? Well, the megalomania is definitely not the side effect of that because then <laughs> he would have have had been on that drug for decades. I mean, <laughs> and, and it's, I'm pretty sure it's not the case because he's yeah, been a right. megalomaniac forever. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Annika? You buy this? Uh, no. <laughs> no. I, I, I say it's all nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> and as I've said before, don't try to diagnose anybody remotely. How can you know anything about anyone just from a TV snippet or whatever you have to go with? And no doctor with self-respect would ever do that. Also, it plays right into wishful thinking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) A lot of conspiracy theories work that way. We want there to be something wrong with this madman. We want answers. We want explanations. We don't want to accept that any person can be evil without any reason that we can find out. And so I don't know how this will end. Uh, By the time this goes out, the Danish intelligence service may have denied all of this because this was just based on a leak by one guy who calls himself Joachim. Uh, They haven't officially presented this theory. But even if they do go out and deny all of this, that this is a theory that they have, it's too late because now the theory is out there and everybody will keep feeding the idea and it will live on forever, especially online. 
No speculation has ever been stopped because an intelligence service has publicly gone out and denied it. <laughs> yeah. If something, it will just add to the already existing flame. So it's like exactly it's that's what the they flame. want you to think. Uh, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you very much. And uh, well. This could have been one of them, but uh, I think we do have a very good candidate for this week's really wrong price as well. Yes, we do. And it's me again, I'm afraid. (laughs) I will tell you about the Swedish king. The Swedish king was interviewed and he's usually interviewed around New Year's because, well, that's what newspapers want to do. How do you feel about the end of the year and what do you think about going forward, etc.? That's a good news item if you want to sell papers. Anyway, this time, among other questions he got, he, he he's a guy, you know, you should understand that the Swedish king is supposed to be very, very quiet about his own opinions. He should just be a figurehead. He should not have any controversial opinions at all. But somehow this king we have cannot help himself but putting his foot in it. And he went back for some reason to talk about when his children were born. This was in the 70s. And he said that his son, which is not his oldest child, should really still have become the king because they shouldn't have changed the law retroactively. And that is such a stupid thing to say. First of all, it's misogynistic. He just emphasized, well, I don't think they should have changed the law retroactively. That's bullshit, because the law was actually changed after the son was born, but the change was to the foundational law. So that this is something that had been discussed for years before. It didn't come as a surprise. And anyway, why would you go out and say this publicly, implying that your oldest child, crown princess, which she is, Victoria, is not... This implies that she's not suitable to be Mm -hmm. the monarch. So (laughs) that was a stupid thing to say. He doubled down on it. He got more questions about it. And he insisted that this is not about misogyny. This is about that they changed the law retroactively. And when we say retroactively, I think it was just a couple of months after Carl Philip is the name of the son was born. And uh, as I said, this was not a surprise. It had been debated for years and it was, everybody knew it was coming anyway. So this proves again to me that uh, monarchy is not good. First of all, it shouldn't matter what your sex is, whether you become the next monarch or not. Second of all, you shouldn't become the monarch just because you had certain parents. That is not a good qualification for any line of work. (laughs) Yes. So, not to drag on too much, for being a misogynistic old fart, proving again why monarchy is stupid, Carl and Sexton de Gustav, Annika, Mm. from last week, (laughs) he gets the prize for being really wrong. Well deserved. <laughs> and also for price for being a shit father. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How how would you feel as the oldest daughter of a father who said that well maybe you, you don't have a penis, so maybe you shouldn't have been the successor. I would be right? angry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, well so deserved. If you need a penis for that, that means that there is something in your penis that makes you suitable <laughs> to be a ruler. And that means that you think with your penis, which is not an advisable thing to do. <laughs> the, royal <laughs> the royal penis. The royal penis. Royal or not, you should never think with your penis. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now that we talked at length about penises, <laughs> should we go on? Is the question. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And another important appendage of our show <laughs> is <laughs> the end pod. When we get a quote. Yes, and this week's quote is short and sweet (laughs) and pun not intended anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, any reference to a recent discussion on Twitter between uh, Greta Thunberg 
and that fucker um what is it andrew tate yeah yeah no, no okay. actually actually no but that was that was a saga in itself actually that was, yeah, it was really it interesting was. i mean we're right at the end of the show so i don't want to say too much but everyone who didn't hear about the developments in in that um epic saga please look it up because that was really interesting and also yeah, consult snopes about the pizza box thing because that also is not <laughs> as it seems but that's all I want to say. <laughs> and the quote this week is from George Bernard Shaw, Irish writer and politician and more. He lived from 1856 to 1950. And the quote is, Beware of false knowledge. It is more dangerous than ignorance. End quote. Mm. Here, here. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Yep. At least if you know that you're ignorant. I don't know if that's a thing. But if you know that you don't know then you're more careful than if you think yeah. you know and you turn out to be exactly. wrong. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. All right. All Thank righty. you very much, Annika. Thank you. And indeed, thanks to both of you for allowing me to come back and join you. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. No, I feel like if, if uh, I want to make a New Year's resolution, one of them is that I should probably be more effective in managing my time when I work so that I can find the time to record, even if it's in the middle of the night. All right. So... Thank you very much, and many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so, and until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Bis slat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Rubb and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast.eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe Let's leave a little bit of silence after it. You know you can insert as much silence as you want to in, in Audacity. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I know that. A moment of <laughs> silence. I was just thinking it, it might be helping uh, you to I, identify the, the, the part. Yeah, uh, could be. I, I, I'm sure I can manage. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the delictus gravioborio. Nah, for I, I knew this this morning. De delictis gravioribus. Now, it turns out, though, that in December last year... No. This is 2023, right? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I loved your, your, your vislat in the last... Oh, yeah, that was good, wasn't it? <laughs>